This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. And we are we're back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first solo episode we are recording of 2023. We recorded the first volume of our Culture That series on cultural Marxism before about, a, I would say, geez, probably about like a month and a half before this, which went over very, very well. I thought there were a lot of positive responses to it, a lot of positive reception to it. Thank you, everybody, for all those things. Those are very, very nice of all you people. Love you guys. And now we are rolling on to volume two, which I'm very excited about because this is an idea that came to me, I would say, relatively recently. And it was just, it was something that I had thought about for, a, for quite a long time, honestly. And I didn't really know how to put it into one thing, how to really, you know, summarize a new idea. But here we are and here it is. And I think it's a really, really big phenomenon and concept to look in with our generation, which the young people, the people who are coming into a lot of money, the people who are going into a lot of affluent jobs, doing a lot of other things. And I think it's very, very relevant for kind of just the overall social fabric. I think that was the word I came back to in a lot of ways, the social fabric of the younger generations and of America in general. So I wanted to kind of hit on this in a lot of ways because I think that there are a lot of moving parts to this, a lot of things that we can control, a lot of things that are kind of been or have kind of, excuse me, been forced upon us that we've kind of adopted. And I, I don't think they're very good for us, to be quite honest with you, but here we are, there it is. And I think it's going to be a really, really interesting thing to flush out and see if it really makes sense as much on paper as it is going to in this conversation with, with well, with myself, actually. So this conversation with myself is me shouting into the void like I usually do. So without further ado, the shouting into the void will begin with volume two of the Culture of series, and let's get it rolling. Of the going on four years I spent trying to absorb the world's knowledge and regurgitate it in a hopefully non-insufferable fashion, the best method I've chosen to do so has, by far, been books. Books, preferably the glue and paper versions, are windows into knowledge you simply cannot find otherwise in a world that is defined by five-minute news segments, staccato Twitter threads, and conversations by the water cooler. Even though long-form podcasting, as discussed in the last volume of the Culture series, is a remarkably useful innovation, it does have its drawbacks. There aren't a lot of, there aren't, there are lots of them. They're relatively easy to produce and don't often require a lot of thought. The same cannot be said for books, all of which, the good ones at least, demand the exact opposite requirements. Therefore, it is paramount to make sure that you are choosing the right books to read for the right reasons. This is a mistake that I've made time and time again over my four-year-long odyssey. I'm absolutely fucking terrible at deciding what books to read. 
the biggest mistake that I make is one that, in my opinion, many people make, particularly when they first start to get going on that odyssey. They crowdsource opinions from Google and people in their social circles and, God forbid, online and read a hodgepodge, best of the best catalog that's produced. This is a horrifically dog shit approach to reading. You should not do this. The primary reason you should not do this is because you are not those other people. What interests them may or may not interest you. The ability to be interested in reading a particular book is perhaps the most crucial element of reading in general. The quality of that metric matters astronomically. It is very hard to invest into something, particularly something as taxing and time-consuming as a book. What you think will be a wondrous endeavor into the unknown will soon become like trying to pull teeth with a jackhammer and razor wire, and I don't recommend that method. However, I do believe that I'm slowly but surely getting it through my thick head that this is the wrong way to go about picking what books I read. This is relevant in my ratio of good books to bad books that I've recorded over the past three years on my best books list. All have slowly but surely inched forward towards the light and away from the pulling teeth with jackhammer and razor wire alternative. This is a good thing and has led me to reading some fantastic books. One of the best books that I read in 2022, clocking in at the prestigious number two slot, was The Dying Citizen by historian Victor Davis Hanson. Hansen, one of the smartest people at observing cultural and political trends we have here in America, wrote a stunning book about a stunning phenomenon going on in American life, the disenfranchising of the American citizen. Setting unelected elites and our expert and ruling class and tribalism between identity, political, and socioeconomic groups is two of the driving factors of the complete dissolution of our social fabric, Hansen painted a very bleak picture of what we all know to be happening in modern America. It was a stunning work of sociology, one that I hadn't seen since J.D. Vance's also phenomenal hillbilly elegy. Those two factors in Hansen's books are relatively easy to spot and even easier to point the finger at as to why our society seems to be going to hell in incredibly swift fashion. Many people, myself certainly included, have in lots of ways rightfully claimed them as our societal boogeyman for as long as I can remember. However, Hansen also cited a third problem a third leg of the stool that was helping to hoist this cultural leviathan out of the abyss to help erode American life. Globalism. Globalism, a mostly overused and well-beaten drum of talking points that have been used for decades as a reference for American decay, was the factor of the book that I thought I was going to be the most useless. It turned out, to my great horror and surprise, to be the opposite. I learned more from that section of Hansen's book than the other two, and by a large margin. Due to its overuse, I largely didn't think about how big of a deal it was. It has been talked about by a lot of people, particularly like people like Hanson and Royce White, who I also like a lot, for years. It's been both a conservative and liberal talking point for far longer. But it wasn't until I finally did my own homework as to why I saw the true danger embedded inside of the talking point itself. Globalism is largely described as two things. First, it is described as the economic trend of formerly domestic economies outsourcing things such as labor and natural resources to other areas of the world in order to improve efficiency and bring down the cost of doing business that might otherwise be higher in that particular nation's borders. Second, it is described as people who largely see the world, not the nation, as their oyster. They prioritize the good of the world over the good of their own country, and largely think in macro terms and conditions over the micro that help bring them out of the world. But this is just the traditional definition not the full one. And to not give Hansen too much credit, the, the gravity of the globalist movement did not fully sink in until it was explained in a YouTube video by Ben Shapiro. In a video surrounding the borderline parody of the World Economic Forum and the destruction and loathing that it wishes upon the world, Shapiro honed in on its central focus as to why, surprisingly, it was so dangerous. Globalism. However, the key distinction was that Shapiro did not describe globalism in terms of currency exchanges, trade agreements, and the work from anywhere movement. Shapiro described globalism as such, 
an importation and subversion of global values into a country at the expense and overthrowing of the values that country has domestically. It is an even and unfair exchange at the same time, a rip and replace venture of what is good for that country versus what is, quote, good for the world. Upon hearing this definition, the light bulb in my head finally turned on, and it all made perfect sense. I couldn't think of a bigger trend that we've seen in the last year than the importation of what is, quote, good for the world, purposely left vague, than what is good for America, or for any country for that matter. Our leaders and the people that have fallen for their lies have repeated the same things over and over again in Orwellian fashion. No one could quite explain their actions. Every, and unfortunately few, time that they are pressed on it, their excuse is always the same. They are doing it for the good of, quote, the world. Why exactly are we supporting a proxy war, the biggest nuclear power in the world, and we have every, nothing to gain from it and quite literally everything to lose? Because it's, quote, good for the world, we're told. Why exactly are we printing unfathomably large sums of money when we don't have anything to support things, we don't have to support things like green energy infrastructure that won't provide nearly the return on investment that they've promised? Because it's, quote, good for the world, we're told. Why exactly are we incentivizing young people to abandon local community and shove themselves into shoeboxes in the middle of cities with other people who are equally as adrift just so they can make an inflated wage to help massive companies get richer? Because it's, quote, good for the world, we're told. For the longest time, our country has talked about globalism in the wrong terms. For too long, the conversation has centered around things that have little, had little to no impact on how the average person in America is affected by it. This is not to minimize the impact on things like the outsourcing of manufacturing jobs, all of which have devastated certain parts of the U.S. economy, particularly middle-aged men. What I am trying to draw attention to, rather, is the Trojan horse of the operation, the thing that has gotten swept under the rug and then has left us defenseless against its hidden onslaught. Globalism is not a failure and bad strategy because of the damage it has done economically. Rather, globalism is a failure and bad strategy because of the damage that it has done culturally. The sin of cultural globalism is that it distorts our vision of what is important to us. It is much more important to value what you have close to you. It is as the old cliche goes. The most important things are within five feet of you, or about five miles of you, if you want to get realistic. These are the places you take your family to eat on the weekends, the schools your children go to, the people in the community that you see every day. These are the thousands of daily collisions that make up your life. They are, therefore, the ones that matter most. Cultural globalism, however, subverts this. It tells us that none of these things are true. And worse, it tells us that the complete inverse of them is true. Your local community does not matter. Where you come from is unimportant. The institutions that hold up the social fabric of the cities and towns that contain so much of our country shouldn't be preserved. Instead, you should abandon them for something, quote, better. Something that is, quote, good for the world. This is an anti-truth, a false idol, a fake proposition. Forsaking what is close and intimate to you for what is far away and ever-reaching is a very poor way to live your life. It's one thing if your life and where you come from is actually bad and detrimental to your existence as a human being. But you should, certainly leave a bad, you should certainly leave a bad situation should it actually be one. But for most of these situations, particularly the ones affecting the most affluent, well-networked, and educated and young, this is not the case. The cancer of cultural globalism is infiltrating American culture en masse. It was exacerbated by the COVID pandemic and the ensuing lockdowns. The work from anywhere era, particularly for the aforementioned group, freed an incredibly large demographic of people to flee for the hills and test the waters of everything the world had to offer. Even though the large institutions of our culture are fighting back against it, the seeds of rot have already been planted. The new, toxic values of cultural globalism have begun to take root and spread throughout the garden of American culture, 
which is crowding out all that once existed from getting the nutrients needed to survive. Now that people, particularly young people, have been attracted and subsequently ensnared by cultural globalism, there is going to be a lot of time and effort spent in getting them to realize the error of their ways if we are going to stop the eroding of our communities and culture, because our culture and the places we reside are like anything else. They must be taken care of with detail, diligence, and a sense of duty. If not, they will become hollow, stale, and wasteful. It has already happened in too many places in America and the world already. It would be a sin to let it infect any more of them. To dissect the problem of cultural globalism, therefore, we must start with the concept of cosmopolitanism, which is where the roots of cultural globalism lie. Second, we must see how, contrary to what we've heard about its benefits, cultural globalism is hurting rather than helping people. Finally, we must lay out a model we should strive for instead to get rid of, both get rid of cultural globalism and restore our former, better way of interacting with community. So, to start, let's talk about what has been the bane of my LinkedIn existence for the past year. If you guys even give a fuck about that, I don't know if you do, you probably don't, but add me on LinkedIn, by the way. Part one, the future of work. It's incredible to believe that the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns are about to be three years old. So much has happened. So much more has changed. It doesn't feel like three years. It feels like three lifetimes. The world we knew before seems so foreign, so far removed from what we once knew, that it's hard to imagine us ever getting back to what that place once was. In many ways, what we had has been lost forever. So much of what we had in the pre-COVID world was taken for granted. We should have cherished it more. However, not all of it was bad either. A lot of essential social conversations were had about how we should treat each other in society. Not all of them ended where they should, and some went too far. But talking about issues that people feel should be raised never hurt anybody. A lot of people realized a newfound freedom in their lives. Many people became more religious due to the mass bumbling of our ruling class and how horrendously they handled the policy during that time. I was one of those people. A higher power of some sort is, indeed, needed. These are all good things. But the best and most important question that we can ask is this. What element of our society has changed the most since COVID? There is an undeniable answer, and not one that most people come to on first glance. Even though the destruction of some of the aforementioned conversations wreaked havoc on our cities, our distrust in institutions and systems became more corroded, and our distaste towards power grew stronger, the one element of American culture that will never be the same is one that affects everyone, and will affect everyone, almost every day for their entire lives. Work. In the last three years, there has been no stable element of American life that has been more disrupted than work. What has happened to things like our employee-to-employer -employer relations, the labor market, and the work-from-home movement has been nothing short of astonishing. It has baffled the smartest minds in economics, government, and public policy from any and all sides of the conversation. No one can figure out the mindfuck that is the mess of our current economy, particularly its mount around its most important component, the people that make it run. COVID completely disrupted the way things were done in the workforce. In the middle of a global pandemic, there was no such thing as business, on business as usual. It was the exact opposite. No one knew what the fuck to do. If you were a large corporation, you had to shell out massive amounts of funds to get employees properly equipped to work at home so you didn't lose traction in the marketplace. If you were a mom-and-pop shop, you had to drastically innovate to stay alive from both the disease and the government that was hyper-focused on containing it, their most likely detriment. For those in the middle, they had to decide what side of the spectrum they fell upon to pick their poison as to how their new, quote, business as usual was to be conducted. 
the reinvention that capitalism had to undergo, particularly the most hardcore and pressing times of lockdown, was a testament to how remarkably strong, regardless of circumstance or outside thought, our economy is. It got hit in the knee with a sledgehammer and didn't break. It may have buckled, which caused massive structural damage and a lot of pain and suffering, but it still ultimately held. The base of what we build our society's wealth on is still strong. That pain and suffering will continue, and in my opinion, explode as we move throughout the course of this year. We're already feeling some of it now, but this type of pain always gets worse as it gets lengthened. As said by Jordan Peterson, you should not hide unwanted things in the fog. Yet, this is exactly what we have done. We have not fully confronted it how badly, even though a lot of it was done in an attempt to save it, the thought to be unlimited growth in the technology sector is finally crashing down, to the detriment of hundreds of thousands of workers who were promised everything but delivered nothing. The trillions of dollars we printed in an attempt to stimulate our economy are now feasting on the dollars in our wages. All the investments that were supposed to define the future, like cryptocurrency and NFTs, are now beginning to reflect what they always have been. Digital fantasies that could one day work, but for now reside as what their reality simply is. But the biggest revelation in all of this, by far, was the work-from-home movement. The work-from-home movement encouraged workers, particularly young people who had no responsibilities nor anyone or anything tying them down, to partake full-time in a complete disconnection from society. For those with responsibilities, who had things like children, elderly parents, mortgages, spouses, and tuition to attend to, it was an opportunity for them to dedicate more time to those things, take back some of the time they'd given away so willingly for something that mattered more than slaving away for an employer that, at the end of the day, probably didn't give too much of a fuck about them to begin with. But for the people that were not of this demographic, however, something else happened. Another emotion set in. Something else captured their brains and made them subject to an ideology that has now seeped into the very foundations of the young workers of America. Like any other disease, such as asbestos, it will be incredibly cumbersome and tedious to remove. But unlike asbestos, it is a mental, not a physical, ailment. Entitlement. The bastard child of the work-from-home movement, the so-called, quote, great resignation, is the manifestation of a boiling sense of entitlement and irresponsibility that is incredibly apparent in the next generation of America's workforce, particularly in the wake of COVID. Instead of adopting the attitude that prior generations had towards work, that it was a necessary component of things needing done, though the young workforce has taken a different approach, that it is something that needs to be done to them. This has created perhaps the strangest event to happen within the labor market we've seen since perhaps the Industrial Revolution. There are a ton of jobs in the world. There are a lot of opportunities waiting to be seized. But no one wants to take them. No one who befits the description of the, quote, great resignation, that is. They're too good for them now, evidently. They, quote, deserve better. They want something, quote, different out of their workplace. They're more than just a number, you see. They're something infinitely more valuable. An outgrowth of a movement that is slowly spreading from the workforce to culture itself. A cosmopolitan. You see, the root of all this strangeness, the root of the current problems in our society of cultural globalism, can be traced back not to its genesis of cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism, not the magazine, is the philosophy that states that everyone belongs to a, quote, world community, that we are all, quote, citizens of the world. It proclaims that there should be a universal set of morals and standards, and that everyone should adhere to them should the world ultimately become a better place. It rejects the concepts of nationalism and regionalism by calling them as bigoted and exclusionary. Instead, the cosmopolitans argue, we should forsake all of those things, all the ashes that our individual phoenixes rose from, to adopt a new, higher sense of value and purpose within the world. Cosmopolitanism is, therefore, 
everything and nothing. But it's incredibly attractive to young people, those who make up the largest portion of the cultural globalists, the burgeoning and wannabe elite of the world. The reasoning behind this is due to the one thing that runs alongside entitlement is the main draw to cultural globalism. Irresponsibility. The reason why cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism, that's a tough word to say, is so attractive and why cultural globalism has increased in its relevance is because no one who partakes in it has to be held accountable or responsible for anything they do while partaking in it. If you abandon everything and pursue nothing, what is left but to be completely untethered to anything? You see the world, your world, as simply one you are responsible to upkeep, as a tool to use for your bland and narcissistic pursuit of human flourishing, one that conveniently only can, you can benefit from. This mindset forces the cultural globalists to take a broad look at certain situations and things, particularly those that are important to them on a localized version, then a localized version, excuse me. It doesn't care about anything except for a broad and muddled analysis of importance or relevance, leaving where you actually can find meaning to decay and suffer because of your refusal to pay attention to it. So why do people fall for this? Why are the bulk of cultural globalists overwhelmingly aspirational and young? And the answer to that question is one word, opportunity. Young people, particularly those in the business-related job market, are drawn to opportunities like moths to flame, as they should be. Opportunities are rare and should never be wasted should you be lucky enough to come upon one. Cultural globalism is perhaps the biggest, quote, opportunity that young people have had en masse since they've been alive. It provides an opportunity to start anew, both in work and in life, quite literally making the world their oyster as they go into it. They are seeing all the potential that cosmopolitanism provides it and are beginning to salivate over it. Particularly with the increase in anti-Western sentiment, as seen in the previous excerpt of this series on cultural Marxism, they are wanting out of the American experiment towards cosmopolitanism, that ever out of reach, quote, something better that they've been for, excuse me, forced to choke on. This is an admirable and aspirational goal on its face, but newsflash, it's been tried before. It's failed miserably every single time it's been attempted. Cosmopolitanism is nothing more than a refraction of all the utopianist systems that have been tried and have subsequently crashed and burned throughout our time. Collectivizing a value system across the world has never worked because no one world can share values unless they come under the threat of force. That has been tried multiple times also and has failed more miserably than those without. This newfound utopia through cosmopolitanism that the cultural globalists desire, this quote, something better that they always chase, is the desire to outsource their own so-called goodness to the world, to bring to light something that they view the world as desperately needing. They see no reasoning behind the ridiculous notion of abandoning what has made them have this goodness. That's neither here nor there to them. Instead, rather, they believe that only through their, quote, good works they can bring the world something that is seemingly lost, while not acknowledging that this was something that was gifted to them in the first place. This is a mistake. What the cultural globalists are doing is not spreading good to the world. Rather, it is a heinous and narcissistic grandstanding on their false sense of moral virtue. It's falsely claiming that their way, the way of the cultural globalist, is the only way to have an impact on the world. They view their local communities, their country, and all of its values as not worth spreading to the world. Rather, it is, quote, the world that needs to be spread towards everywhere else. Local tradition, customs, and people don't matter anymore. All that matters is that the rest of the world becomes imported into all these local places that their desired utopia begins to consume any and everything that threatens and has passed thwarted it. Cosmopolitanism and its outgrowth of cultural globalism are nothing more than open and vain forms of narcissism. They are the worst kind of people. 
Those who refuse to care for things that are around them while attempting to play God by making the rest of the world to their own distorted image. They ignore, perhaps, Jordan Peterson's most crucial rule. Put your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. They have not done this thing, this ever-crucial thing. They, therefore, are operating in the world in a distorted perception of what is and was. The most confusing thing about all of this, the entire cultural globalist movement, is that the people that engage in it think that, at the end of the day, this is all for the better. That everything that they do, quote, for the world, helps the world. That their actions don't have consequences. That they cannot do anything wrong simply because their values are, quote, right. This is also a mistake. Cultural globalism, the act of checking out of your local world for an abstract and falsified global one, harms many more people, places, and things than they are ever willing to look honestly at and admit to. In fact, it does the exact opposite. To the title of the series, it erodes culture, specifically America's. This is a movement that has caught serious momentum, and not in a direction nor speed that is favorable to those that the cultural globalists think that it helps. Part 2. For the world? In his masterful book, Ship of Fools, Tucker Carlson makes the first, and I would argue most successful, attempt at what largely defines the root of most problems in our country today, America's elite, and the attitude they have towards those they view as not so. Carlson, one of the first people like Hansen to understand the movement behind up-and-coming populists such as Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, painted a bleak yet unfortunately accurate picture of the state of several of America's most critical elements. The one that took me, and I would guess most, by surprise, was the stance he took on the topic of environmentalism. Carlson was a part of the last generation that was raised primarily by the outdoors. There was no technology that kept him inside of his home, so he and the children raised in that time frame made their home outside. He and his brother constantly ran around, fishing, hunting, and interacting with nature. Being raised in then beautiful Southern California, the expansive reserves of America's most naturally blessed state become, became what Carlson, like many, viewed as the peak of our country's natural beauty. Carlson continued on that path his entire life. He only bought beagles so he could take them to help them hunt in the forests. He constantly traveled the world throughout his career to see all that it could provide him in the experience of his life. When he was threatened by Antifa and left his then 30-year residence in Washington, D.C., he and his family fled to their cabin in rural Maine, where they spent their summers. When he traveled, he would rather go to places such as rural Montana and the panhandle of Florida to go fly fishing with the locals rather than Aspen or upstate New York to ski among the affluent. So, naturally, what is currently happening with our cultural globalist response to the United States and world environments make people like Carlson outrageously furious. Gone are the days of conser conservationism, where there was a mass movement to protect forests, wildlife, and the ecosystems of the past that brought so much life to the world. Instead, that has been trampled underfoot by a new and, quote, better system of environmentalism, one that does not take into account what it destroys, but only what it promises to create. Green energy. Green energy, primarily through the attempted capture of solar and wind for conversion to electricity, is all the conversation centers around nowadays when it comes to protecting the environment. We're currently going through the greatest decimation of species in the history of the world right now. Overfishing and pollution are out of control, which threaten everything within that specific biome. I mean, we helped blow up a fucking oil pipeline in the middle of the Baltic Sea, which spilled so much carbon in the atmosphere that it could potentially erase an entire two years of climate process, just so we could dare Russia to try to nuke us. You don't hear about these things in the news. 
you don't see them in your social media feeds. That is by design, completely because of the move towards cultural globalism. What passes as today's, quote, environmentalism is not environmentalism at all. Should we try to use solar and wind energy to prevent things like global warming and a reduction in the ozone layer? Perhaps, should they actually do the job, I have nothing wrong with them personally, nor do a lot of people, particularly those who care about nature and what we're currently doing to it. However, there must be some room for honest assessment at the table, because this is something we should be careful not to fuck up at the end of the day. But of course, we are fucking it up, it turns out. We are fucking it up. The current environmentalism movement that has hijacked what was once a noble cause is wreaking havoc across our country, ecosystems, and world. The green energy zealots, completely unforgiving for those who oppose them, have gotten increasingly bold with their demands on the world's population. There is no room for argument nor hesitation. What they tell you to do must be done now. It cannot wait. The world may not have enough time. For an example that's most serious, let's turn our attention to our friends over in Europe, particularly in the colder, colder regions east. Europe is always a good barometer to use when discussing American policy. They're usually about one step further than us in most everything, most notably insanity. Recently, the European Union decided they were not going to allow for extensive natural gas use to power their homes so that people can cook their food and heat their houses. Instead, they were going to tamp down that usage and outsource it to more, quote, green solutions. This was a part of their transition to a carbon-neutral economy, of which they said they wanted to reach by 2050. It didn't matter about the actual climate, where temperatures often go below freezing, nor the environment itself, which isn't that sunny nor windy during the winter months, it turns out. There's only 25 years left. There are no seconds that they have to spare. What is going to result from this, particularly in the war-torn Eastern Europe, is a complete opposite of what the neo-environmentalists say. They will not die from global warming. Instead, they will die from freezing to death. The most affected by this will, as always and of course, be the poor, who already don't have that much room to spare to begin with. As a morbidly accurate analogy for the situation goes, when the rich catch a cold, the poor die of pneumonia. As a result of this, they're now being forced to siphon power out of data centers to prevent mass deaths, which is going to cause another crisis that we won't touch today. Long before the war in Ukraine broke out, Carlson and his team produced a documentary surrounding environmentalism in the United States, particularly the green energy movement, and some of their findings were shocking. Wind turbines, supposedly harmless things, devastate local colonies of birds and make the surrounding habit un unlivable for other animals. Solar panel farms destroy the ground that could be used for other, better purposes, like caring for animals and plants. We buy most of all of these things to create this pathway for, quote, green energy from slave labor camps who use fossil fuels such as coal in China. Sadder still, we are only getting a little bit of the benefit for destroying total ecosystems, all in the name of doing it, quote, for the world. All in the name, of course, of cultural globalism. An important part, the most important part about globalism that I missed, was the importation of global values. The ability for a nation to keep its sovereignty, to keep its society on the right side of the toughness gap, is paramount to that nation being a success in anything it wants to do. Should it not do this and leave it up for interpretation as to what its values are and what it stands for, it opens the door for a force to come in and corrupt it. This is the linchpin as to why globalism is so harmful to people domestically. This principle is country agnostic, but it rings true especially in America, which has prided itself for most of her existence on a principle of independence when it comes to things like liberty and values. The ability for a country to have a say in its own fate, particularly one that is important on the world stage the United States, is not merely a luxury that we're blessed to have. It's essential, due to all the competition we face from around the world that is trying ceaselessly and unrelentingly from trying to tear us off our perch. 
When you subvert de domestic values for global values, you inherently make your own dwelling place lesser than the world. The people that are harmed by this are, obviously, the citizens of that dwelling place. The whole point of Hansen's book and Carlson's critique of our policy towards environmentalism was simple. There should be no one in a position of elected power that should not have to answer to the people that put that person in the position, that position. Period. Anything short of that, and we cease to have a democracy. Because the point of a dem democratic system of government, after all, is to accurately represent the citizens of that government. They are not the rulers over the population, but the servants of that population. If you are not accurately representing the whims of the people who you represent, you deserve to be removed from power immediately for someone that will. No one person gets to decide. It is a culture that gets to decide. A culture that gets to determine the fate of a sovereign nation going forward. Cultural globalism cuts this principle out at the knees, because cultural globalism is a flat-out rejection of sovereign democracy. It is taking that democracy, siphoning out its core, and outsourcing it to an international coterie of elites who decide to rainmake from a perch upon an ivory tower, quote, for the world. They do not care for all the needs of individual nations, because they don't matter. What does matter, however, is preserving their newly established authority and order, which is made only possible by those people in the first place. People suffer when those in power fail to pay attention to them, particularly when they're as hopelessly detached as those who are making an attempt to capitalize on cultural globalism. When you're negligent to the problems in your own country in preference to the problems of the world, those problems begin to fester, rot, and multiply, leaving no one in a position of authority to deal with them as they begin to eat the country from the bottom up. Worse still, cultural globalism causes something else to rise up, something perhaps even more intangible than their negligence towards the people that they should be serving. Hatred. The sad reality of cultural globalism is that over time, the cultural globalists, particularly those in elevated positions of influence and power, begin to not just dislike, but hate the people they leave behind. Cultural globalism causes the people swept up in its ideology to hate where you come from, your own country, community, and people, because of your allegiance to the new and broader spectrum of influence that you serve. Having been taken away from the things that tethered you to the earth and raised you to the position that you currently reside in, you begin to look down upon and condescend towards anything that reminds you of where you came from. And, unfortunately for people caught up in those circles, it, over time, isn't enough just to despise people that, quote, hold you back from achieving your new place in the global hierarchy. Eventually, you have to go to the next level. You have to transcend mere thoughts and words. Actions must be taken against the Luddites, those who dare to oppose you by reminding you of your negligence to where you came from. Eventually, it won't be enough to remind them that they are less than you. Eventually, you have to begin to punish them for it. There is no better way to keep people subjugated and yourself elevated than to threaten the people that you hate with action that could harm them. What this looks like for cultural globalism is exactly what we're doing to our natural environments and the living things that inhabit them. They're killing them. They're making it hurt worse. They're too busy doing things, quote, for the world, that they begin to feel that anything that gets in their way is an inherent threat to their existence. By making these poor people conform to a flawed value system, you immediately cut them off from potential servitude that could help them. It, therefore, makes the interactions between the cultural globalists and those doing the work to hold domestic societies together that much worse, because they have two options, forsake all they believe in and love, or die trying to defend them. Cultural globalism puts these people in a corner and forces them to choose, and the dirty trick is that neither option is good, neither are optimal. Neither will help our culture.
What it does instead is hurt our culture by causing an elitism by way of luxury beliefs. Luxury beliefs, a set of systems, thoughts, and values that are meant to convey status, play a specific role in our culture current moment, particularly surrounding cultural globalism. The specific luxury belief embodied here is simple. Since you're, quote, of the world, you can therefore impose yourself and your flawed value system onto others via a greater sense of virtue. You are elevated in the new society of the world and can consequently do whatever you want and need to protect that status. The feel of culture globalists is that, due to their greater sense of virtue surrounding their value systems, they can dictate to the rest of the world what they should believe, feel, and think on their way towards a new, better system of values. But this, like all luxury beliefs, is wrong. What this actually does is create an us-versus-them mentality with everything which makes the domestic homeland of America and society divide itself even further. Contrary to what you may think, people don't like change. This can be sometimes for good reasons. If something is working well, for example, you should not be in a rush to change it for something that does not work well. But if a value system is valued and works for society, you risk upending it at your peril. Much of the damage that cultural globalism has caused America is because of this phenomenon. We've completely dropped the ball at defending the things that are close to us. We've traded it away for a false idol and bad bet of things that are far away. Things that resemble the ill-fated green light of Jay Gatsby rather than anything to hope for in the tangible and real sense of the world. Or the word, excuse me. Like the green light, we will always be kept reaching. Like the green light, we will always find when, it reach, what we, when we reach is at our doom. Cultural globalism does not and has not ever worked. What we do not need is a new system. Rather, what we do need is simply a remix of the old system. Part 3. Communes and Cosmos The last good Fast and Furious film before the franchise went completely insane is undoubtedly Fast Five, which featured the street racing crew fleeing to Brazil to escape the long arm of the law that was about to choke the life out of Dominic Toretto. Embarking on a heist to ensure their freedom before they flew cars into space for some reason that would net them $100 million, the crew has to evade the ruthless Agent Hobbs, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. At first, it seems like it's only a matter of time before the much better equipped feds catch up with Toretto's crew. They have the highest grade of equipment, guns, manpower, and tools at their disposal. They, like the audience, think that their capture of the crew will be an inevitability. So, they eventually locate Toretto's crew and rush to apprehend them. However, Hobbs' unit does have a confusion when they do this. Toretto and the crew aren't hiding. They're in the open air, hanging out with street racers like they did back in California. And, worse off, most of the street racers are all criminals. They're a product of Brazil's environment. They've glommed onto the existing superstructure of power, the ganglands of the favelas, and are now flaunting that openly. Nonetheless, they pack down their gear and roll out in their armored vehicles to arrest the crew. When they pull up, they're fully immersed in the scene. Half-naked women strut around highly decaled and souped-up cars. Local gang lords flaunt their excess in money in every way possible. Alcohol and marijuana flow freely. Food vendors station themselves around the commoners. Everyone seems to be having a great time before Hobbs and his unit crash the party. When the party begins to be crashed, the scene shifts. It is not Toretto and his crew that seem out of place and out of the ordinary. That role is shifted to Hobbs, the relentless ball-breaker that has disrupted their good time. Toretto and his best friend Brian O'Connor don't take up this persona at all. 
they're chilling out when Hobbs and his crew pull up, usually sipping, casually sipping on beers and chatting up the locals about fast cars and good times long past. Even though they're technically foreign, it is of no question at this point that they're assimilated into the community. Hobbs, being a relentless breaker of balls, doesn't pick up the subtlety. He's just there to, quote, pick up two assholes his name hit his desk. He and his crew drag their outrage- draw their outrageously large guns, motion for the crowd to move out of the way, and confront Toretto and O'Connor, the aforementioned two assholes, in the middle of the party. Hobbs' seriousness that adorns his face is in direct contrast with Toretto's and Connor's, O'Connor's ambivalence. They seem annoyed and mildly amused, almost miffed that Hobbs would dare try to arrest them for the crimes in the middle of the frivolity. When Hobbs tries to intimidate the two, they simply shrug it off. I don't feel under arrest. How about you, Brian? asked Toretto. Nope, not even a little bit, he replies. Hobbs tells them it will sink in eventually, but at this point, even he thinks that his position is strained. Toretto knows it, too, and begins to taunt Hobbs. Hobbs, becoming ever more triggered by Toretto's apparent upper hand, throws all of Toretto's crimes and shameful moments back in his face, telling him that he's made the biggest mistake of his life by getting him to come after him. In response, Toretto hops off his car and gets about two inches from his face. Calmly, Toretto, armed with nothing more than a wife beater and Vin Diesel's gravelly voice, says that Hobbs made a mistake of his own. Thinking that he had the authority to stroll into a Brazilian favela like he could come to any other crime den in America. You're a long way from home, he reminds him. To drive his point home, Toretto spreads his arms and shouts a now immortalized line. This is Brazil. At this moment, no less than about 100 guns from the community of crime lords and gangsters come out and get pointed straight at Hobbs and his unit. They've been surrounded. Their authority, to the point of Toretto, means shit in this neighborhood. They can't tell them what to do. They can't get them to do what they want them to do. This is their neighborhood. They decide who gets to come to the community and who gets to stay. They are the ones who make the rules. Not some steroid-infused hyper-masculine federal employee who gets high on his own status and even higher on his perceived authority. That scene illustrates an oft-forgotten question. Why did that happen exactly? How is it possible that Dominic Toretto, who is completely powerless in theory, was able to take one of the most intimidating movie villains in recent memory and reduce him down to nothing? How could he possibly have put himself in the power position? There is one answer that reigns above all the rest, one that is also the answer to our current problem of cultural globalism. Community. The reason why Hobbes and his unit failed to take down Dominic Toretto is because they underestimated the strength and solidarity of the people that they were going after. They thought that, because they were official members of the most powerful country in the world, they could come in, kick the door in, and dictate to a native community of people how they should behave. That was a grave mistake, and it nearly cost them everything. It didn't matter that Toretto and his crew were mostly white Americans and had only been in Brazil for a short time. What did matter was that they didn't try to come in and change them or their values. They blended in, took the good with the bad, and became a part of their tribe. Hobbs and his team did not do this, and almost got themselves shredded with hollow-tipped lead as a result. Hobbs led his, unit, led his unit right into a home that wasn't theirs to claim, and got punked in front of his entire team as a result of his ignorance. Instead of cosmopolitanism, instead of cultural globalism, we should strive for its opposite, communitarianism. Communitarianism, the act of localizing your life down to a small community of people, is the way society has most effectively functioned since we were living in caves. Small groups of people, small tribes of people, always do better, 
because there is mutual interest of the entire tribe succeeding. If one person begins to fail, for example, that is a huge detriment to the rest of the community. If one person succeeds, that is a huge benefit to the rest of the community. This is due to the fact that when you trim the fat off your life and burn off the unneeded dead wood, everyone has an incentive of people doing well because there is no other choice. The beautiful thing about community, the one thing about cultural globalism that strikes at a death blow, is that it forces you to grow within that community, not outside of it. Growth, contrary to what they say, is the antithesis of globalism and cultural globalism. It is an act of growth by letting old things decay into nothing. With communitarianism, however, that is no longer an issue. You take all the fakeness out of the issue and improvise it with real people as the stakeholders in your success. You're forced to grow because you have an authentic bond with the people in your life, not one put together a shoddy manufacturing built on a foundation of lies about improvement. You are willing to help people up, not leave them behind, because you're realizing that helping people grow is the whole point of bonding together. It is not to get something out of people, nor to make them feel insignificant because of your accomplishments. Instead, it is about doing things for those people and making things happen for those people. It, inarguably, is a win-win situation all around. Growing up, my neighborhood was always so great because of the community we had within it. We had barbecues together. All the parents in the neighborhood knew a good amount of information about one another. All the kids constantly played together. They did the same sports, had roughly the same values, and were very accepting and tolerant of one another where they could live in the same space without hardly any problems. I was stunned when I moved out of the house because it was not the case in any place that I lived. I was complicit in it, no question, but the opposite effect taking place in numbers all across the country is staggering. The data is in. Hardly anyone knows their neighbors anymore. Hardly anyone goes to local religious services anymore. No one bakes cookies or meals for anyone anymore. Our society, once strung together by communitarianism, has sold out our communities for its bastard cousin of cosmopolitanism and cultural globalism. It falls back upon us and the younger generation to fix this. We need to bring this back. We need to start knowing our neighbors again. We need to start supporting our local institutions, like churches and small businesses, instead of selling out to naive and vain spirituality practices and fast food conglomerates. When someone is new around us, we should greet them with a plate of brownies and a smile, not a condescending eye and watchful gaze. When someone is down, we should be conspiring with our neighbors as to how we can help them or bring them a meal, not gossiping behind their backs as to how down their luck that person might be. Cultural globalism, the act of uprooting local community, is the enemy of strong local connection, which has therefore torn our social fabric to shreds. To stop it, we must immediately begin to do the opposite. In enforcing the switch from cosmopolitanism to communitarianism, we will put the emphasis on local community instead of living in isolated and complex metro areas where no one gives a shit about anyone. We sold out our local happy, localized happiness for a globalized fantasy to all of our detriments. Revitalizing that local community with the people who are going to inherit those local communities will be a crucial step in ensuring that everyone has a place at the table in society that's completely beholden to the, its, its exact opposite and empty opposite for decades. The desired end state shouldn't be what it was like now. A bunch of alone, entitled, and unhappy people cramped up in shoeboxes just looking for the next opportunity to shoot themselves in the head. Instead, what it should look like is something similar to what we all know and love. A block party. Communitarianism, the desired future state we should be all bring our culture back to life, should act, feel, and look like a big block party. It should be lots of different and beautiful people with a lot of different and beautiful experiences coming together to enjoy and grow together in life. 
They should be happy to be together, know one another, and invest in one another's life and success. It should not be combative nor competitive, but instead mutualistic and welcoming. When this is the attitude of a generation, the whole paradigm around that generation begins to shift. If this model of communitarianism is adopted, we will become richer both economically and in spirit. This is, if we're honest, what we all desire. No one wants to live in a cultural globalist state. It's boring, empty, and shallow. We all desire depth. We all desire meaning. We all want to be a part of something. And these are all noble desires. However, to actually have them, to defeat the thing that makes us so unhappy, we have to start acting upon them. Community is, and has been, the bedrock of American life for the almost entirety of existence. To restore our culture, we must also restore community. The first step to doing both is by rejecting cultural globalism, the new movement that seeks to falsely promise community by leaving our actual communities to decay and rot away in our wake. It strips away our inherent value in community by promoting a lie that the world is better than our community. This is wrong. The world will never do for you what community will do for you because the world cannot provide meaning like community can provide meaning. To reconnect that meaning, we must reconnect to the most important things in our lives, those that lie within five feet of us, those that sustain us through the triumphs and tragedies of life. Well, maybe except for a cure for venereal diseases. You should use Google for that, and you probably should use Google for that. But the actual solution to that all-too-real problem is next two weeks, or the next two weeks. I fucked up the ending. Tune in for our conclusion in part three. Okay, so that is the podcast for this week, guys. I think it's I think it's a really interesting idea. It's a really fascinating thing. That's like, it's been on my mind a lot recently, especially with all like the travel craze and you know the you know the companies lashing back out of their employees for returning to work, all that other sort of stuff. So I think it's an interesting concept. Again, not telling you what to think, but think I'm telling you to think, to think, think about it, all that kind of stuff. So also said this last week on our conversation with Dan Allen. The audiobook for Value Economics is now out, and it is in the world. It is recorded by me and my guy Steve, who helped me record the audiobook, Steve Corona. He is phenomenal. His voice is phenomenal. That's why I picked him. Uh, we have a conversation at the end of every chapter, much like we do with this. So if you are not totally sick and want to shoot yourself in the head for me listening to me talk, listen to the audiobook. It, it's really great from what I've heard from a lot of people. I just got another review in from an old friend this morning who said it was awesome. And um, yeah, guys, I highly recommend it. So I would say until then, I will talk to you guys. We got a really exciting conversation, by the way, coming up in the next week or so. I'm really, really pumped for this one. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Part three coming up in two weeks. And as always, guys, on the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?